0: Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 28th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, there have been no summer doldrums when it comes to the legal problems facing both the Republican and Democratic presidential frontrunners. On Wednesday, the White House learned that first son Hunter Biden's plea bargain was rejected by a Delaware judge. In other election news, Ron DeSantis shook up his campaign staff in hopes of reassuring his donors. And because why not, the House held hearings on UFOs where we learned that the government allegedly has been secretly holding onto what a former Air Force intelligence officer called non-human biologics found at UFO crash sites. Joining me to talk about all this are president and co-founder of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at the Federalist News site. So Tom, I know you guys want to spend the whole show on UFOs, <laughs> uh, but I've been out of town and I want to start with Hunter Biden. Uh, Delaware Judge Mary Ellen Norieka rejected the deal that the Justice Department and Biden's lawyers thought they had hammered out. Uh, the House is going to hear from one of Hunter Biden's business partners next week. Lots of speculation on what he may tell them. So where does this stand and how bad is it all for the Biden
1: campaign? Listen, for the record, I want it to be known. I wanted to spend the entire 45 minutes on uh, the Biden's dog in the White House because that seemed to be a, <laughs> uh It's a good summer story. <laughs> yeah. My God, the press corps was just infatuated with that story for some reason the other day. Like The Hunter Biden thing. This was just amazing what happened uh, in this courthouse the other day because there weren't any cameras allowed. So you were getting reports, uh, th- but it all happened in front of reporters. And it looks as if the DOJ and Hunter Biden's lawyers had agreed on sort of this sweetheart deal, which included a clause, now known infamously as paragraph 15, which the judge herself did not even see until right before the hearing, didn't even know it existed and then saw it and kind of sniffed out and started asking questions about, hey, you know, what's going on here? And is he still under investigation? Is this constitutional, whether it would offer immunity, et cetera. And the whole thing just completely crumbled. And when she asked if he was still under investigation, the DOJ said yes, and that it would not offer future immunity. And, And Hunter Biden's lawyers went nuts and said, well,
2: that's it. Then tear it up. It's null and void. But you know what's interesting about that, Tom? Because we could go back to the tape when he this indictment and the plea bargain was first announced. I said on this show, I pointed out that the government was saying the investigation continues, right? And Hunter Biden's lawyer was saying, "No, this this completely this wraps up everything." And I remember thinking that's an odd discrepancy. The judge thought so too. It and, and this issue had remained dormant, but before it was supposed to be disposed of before this federal judge who actually pointed out that she'd never heard of a plea agreement so broad that it would actually protect the defendant from other and unrelated crimes. I don't know what unrelated crimes the government has in mind. The one I have in mind is failure to register as a foreign agent. And that's the one they sent Paul Manafort to prison for that. She asked specifically
1: about Farrah. It just shows that, in my opinion, sort of the mendacity. Uh, at work here, and the the level of corruption, whatever you want to call it, uh, working to secure this this special deal for Hunter.
2: Wait, Tom, that's that's a little strong. Mendacity. <laughs> the lawyer for Hunter Biden is trying to get the best deal for his client. That's not mendacious. That's they what...
1: buried it, Carl, and they put it in the diversion piece of the deal, not the
2: actual plea agreement. Well, you may not like. What the government did, but I, I'm being—I'm trying to be precise here. Hunter Biden's lawyer is doing what every good criminal defense lawyer does: is trying to get the best deal for his or her client and trying to make sure his or her client doesn't have to go to prison. So that wasn't mendacious. I think there—it looks like there was a real mis, miscommunication, a misunderstanding. The defense thought this was the end of it; the government didn't. Yeah, it was just an honest mistake. Emily,
1: uh, do you see it that way? <laughs> Emily, break the tie here. Come on.
3: Well, from what I've heard from people with knowledge of the situation, that this would be Republicans, it, it appears from their end, actually to resemble, again, from their perspective, mendacity, that the call in particular that was made from Biden, the Hunter Biden legal team, I think what happened in court is fully understandable within the context of defending your client and trying to get the best deal possible. I do think they're going to have a lot to answer for in the coming weeks and months as people investigate who made that call trying to invalidate the amicus brief that Republicans filed, which it's unusual for a congressional committee to file an amicus brief in a case like this. But when they called and had that strange interaction that we've, we've referenced here, it's, it looks a whole lot to people involved that it, there was no, there's really no explanation for that other than it was funny business. Although I do agree in court, there's a basic question of them just trying to defend their client.
2: You're very kind, Emily, but I can see I've been outvoted.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Democracy.
0: (laughs) So, Tom, let's talk about what might happen next week. Uh, Just moving this story forward, Devin Archer, a longtime friend, a fellow Burisma board member with Hunter Biden. He's going to talk to the House Oversight Committee. It's a closed-door session, so we'll only hear reports. We won't see the pictures. But reportedly, he's going to testify under oath that Joe Biden sat in on at least two dozen phone calls with Hunter Biden to uh, some of Hunter's clients. Now, this guy, just so everyone knows, he's already been sentenced to a year in prison for uh, his role in this $60 million bond fraud. So interesting character, but what do you think is going to happen? And what do you make of the fact that um, he's
1: kind of in hiding right now? Well, that piece of it doesn't surprise me, but I th- I thought it was pretty interesting that his what he's alleged to do going to testify to next week got leaked last week. And that sets up a situation and it be, it was part of the news story that drove this whole thing forward, right? The idea that he's going to testify that on two dozen occasions that Hunter Biden whipped out his cell phone and got his dad on the line while he was vice president, including one time at the behest of Burisma executives. That seems all very specific and damning and all of that. I believe Devin Archer has also said in the past that, you know, made statements to the effect that Joe Biden wasn't, you know, involved or or something to that effect. So if he shows up and that's not what he testifies to, if he testifies to something, you know, it could be a setting of expectations. Now, now the expectations are up here. He's going to say all this wild damning, you know, stuff. And if for whatever reason, that's not what he testifies to that'll look like, you know, Oh, the Republicans are out over their skis again on this, you know, persecution of hunter biden so then again if he if that's what he does testify to then i think the biden administration and joe biden in particular this is a problem that is not only not going away is getting worse he was asked about it yesterday uh you know are you going to pardon your son uh you know there are questions to the white house press briefing now about it you can just feel the heat is getting sort of ratcheted up it's it's not something that the media who has been trying to ignore it as best they can for weeks now, um, it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to do it much longer. This is Hunter Biden's closest business associate.
2: This is not some random dude. And if- well, well, also Tom, it, it's it's more than that because as long as the White House officials and the president himself can say this was my troubled son, this is my prodigal son who has straightened out his life. He's in sobriety now. He's he's married. He's he's got his life together this is stuff from before you know that's been the storyline. that has been the narrative that the white house has pushed and the democrats and most of the media has essentially bought into but before that and as part of that the president said flatly i've never discussed business with him in other words those are hunters problems not my problems if it turns out that and this is what you're talking about with the, the, this evidence that suggests that that he did talk to his son about these transactions and talked to other people about them and was involved in them, first of all, that's a political problem. It means the president lied. The second issue then that also brings up, well, are we looking at bribery here? What are we talking about? So that's the more serious thing that you need a lot more information. But in the White House did something subtle and Phil Wegman of of the White House for us wrote a story about it. They shift. They shifted the line a little bit in the last few days. Before they had said he's never discussed his business with his son. It was categorical. Now there's now the now the term of art is he was never in business with his son. If they show that he was in business with his son, you, you, you almost half expect the next line to be they didn't have a written contract. I mean, <laughs> this is this is a, a slippery slope for the White House, and they went there and they hoped nobody would notice. But at least one right house reporter did notice, and that's Phil Wegman, and he asked them about it. And,
1: it, and they couched it in, you know, the way that Kareem Jump pierre couched it was just so, I'll use the word mendacious again, like, I've been asked this a thousand times, and I, you know, the question, the answer is always the same. It's never changed. And the president was not in business with his son. I mean, no, she like, said, like, she
2: well, said the answer's never changed yeah, while well, changing the answer. Exactly. <laughs> which is you just- You got to give her credit for but Tom. <laughs>
1: Emily, what do you
0: make of this? Because it looked thought out. I mean, don't you think that this was sort of a messaging point? And that must have been an interesting conversation in the White House when they decided to change their tune on this.
3: Yeah, especially if any of them were around during the campaign, um, when they were trying to come up with all of these excuses. And I actually think that's one of the most frustrating things about this story. I saw Peter Schweitzer, I think he tweeted out the Miranda Divine piece that we've been talking about um, from Devin Archer, it looks like it's a leak from the Archer camp about what he's going to testify on. And Peter uh, was like, Read more about this here, um, but, you know, a lot of this was reported earlier, too. Like, we've actually already known a good deal of the information as it pertains to Joe Biden involving himself in Hunter Biden's business. Obviously, from the perspective of Hunter Biden, let's say, hypothetically, Joe Biden had no knowledge of it. From the perspective of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden was crucial to his business. Uh, There's no way that Hunter Biden is doing any of the business that he does without Uh, Joe Biden being Joe Biden. So the question then is, what did Joe Biden know? And we have for years had pictures of Joe Biden on the golf course, with uh, the Ukrainian clients of Hunter Biden's. We have for years known of meetings. Um, We have, like, there is a lot of this stuff. There's no words from Joe Biden, and I think that's where the Devin Archer story, if Miranda is correct, although she may be correct and it may change, the fact that it was reported might change uh, as the Bidens put pressure down on Devin Archer in any different ways. It may change ultimately what he does testify to, if he does testify. But what that did was say, we have here a really high level person who's going to put words in the president's mouth. Basically, he's going to say, I heard the president of the United States um, verbally engage in this scheme. And that is Crucial. It's not, you know, a smoking gun. A smoking gun would be Joe Biden on an audio tape, um, you know, saying he did the, he fired the Ukrainian prosecutor to help Hunter with his uh, Burisma clients who benefited from that prosecutor being fired. That would be a smoking gun. But if you have somebody as close to the Bidens as Devin Archer was and is saying, putting words in the president of the United States mouth that that tie him verbally to that, it, it's a huge deal. Um, although the connections abound and we've known about them for a long time.
0: So. And- You know, Kevin McCarthy is using the I word this week. Uh, He told CNN, (laughs) how do you get to the bottom of this? The only way Congress can do that is going to an impeachment inquiry. So I guess the idea is you don't go after Attorney General Merrick Garland. You don't go after the Homeland Security. You go right after the big guy. Does that make political sense to you? And do you think he'll do it?
3: I don't know. I mean, if the red line for moving to impeachment is not getting enough information, when you have a team that has for years, the Bidens fought not to provide that information in a a million different ways. I know Kevin McCarthy feels like the spigot is on right now, and he's kind of bragged about that. Like, they have gotten bank records. um, They've recovered all kinds of interesting information. um, And if they get Devin Archer to testify, that's great. So it just, the idea of not getting more information as a standard for impeachment, to me, feels like, a for an impeachment trial, that, to me, feels like a, a way too low of a bar. But he's, you know, where he's been for months. He's between a rock and a hard place, for years, um, because you now have bloodlust that continues to ramp up for some impeachment, some scalp, whether it's Mayorkas, whether it's Biden, among the sort of Freedom Caucus folks. And uh, that's going to be really, really tough for him to navigate. So I understand why he threw a soft target out there. Uh, But if that is indeed the standard for impeachment, I don't know that it's a wise one or a healthy one.
1: Tell him what do you think? It's completely understandable, I think, for all the talk about, you know, how many norms Donald Trump broke when he was in office, and he did break some, let's be clear about that. But Democrats are the ones who who really lowered the bar for impeachment. And Republicans are looking around saying, my God, you know, we have all of these things that are happening now with the Bidens, you know, you impeach Trump over a phone call, why would we not impeach Biden over, you know, a $10 million bribery scheme that's alleged in an, an FBI document? And you've got, you know, the Democrats and folks in the media, I mean, are just it's it's fairly amazing to watch them attack everybody that they lauded, you know, just a few short years ago, whistleblowers, um, <laughs> you know, uh Nancy Pelosi calling it like a, a clown show. Claire McCaskill was on MSNBC the other day and said that That they want to indict Biden for loving his son? Like, that's what this is about? I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's really sort of ridiculous (laughs) watching Democrats try and wave this stuff away and justify it. I mean, there is, let's put it this way. If Democrats had this kind of evidence on Donald Trump, they would impeach his ass in two minutes. They wouldn't feel bad about it. They they impeached him for less, twice for less. Tom,
2: they impeached him twice. And wait a minute. But you say that, let's let's, uh, do a little... On the fly fact checking here. You say Democrats lowered the bar for impeachment. Um, I, I know you were in college playing football. <laughs> you, okay, I, you had, you should, I think you had, but they had helmets back then. You should remember that uh, Bill Clinton was impeached over personal behavior. I covered that. I remember having misgivings about it. And writing, I wonder where it where it ends, where it leads. Now we know where it leads. He did perjure himself. So that's right. That's true. Wait, wait, but I want, but Emily, but I want to return to Emily's point because that's an impeachment as a vehicle to gather information. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that's what the founders had in mind, but I, I'm sympathetic to what the Repub- house Republicans are looking at. They've been stonewalled on this. The whole, the whole country has every step of the way. And, and the media is not doing it his job from, from the Republican standpoint, that's what they're seeing. And, you know, how are they going to get answers you know biden doesn't hold press conferences you know he just he's the, he's the first president in modern history basically unresponsive in that way they don't the, the, we've been through what the white house has said about this i mean look i thought i thought clinton's impeachment and, and trump's first impeachment were obviously partisan overreach and the, i mean, clinton i know the majority of americans agreed with me i second impeachment nixon's i won't go into that but but this thing here—how are these people supposed to get information? We want answers. The American people want answers. And and the other thing, I, the other point I make—I know Andy you want to move on—but one other thing: impeachment proceedings tend to take on a life of their own. You can't control where they go. When Bill Clinton's impeached under this now, he was impeached as Andy pointed out about committing perjury in a sexual harassment trial. So it was a—he wouldn't have withstood that today. Mm-hmm. But but then it turns out that. Uh, Newt Gingrich and Bob Livingston, who was going to be the new speaker. They had their own sort of secret lives. and you were you were you were getting into sexual behavior and it ended up where the, the re, a lot of the Republicans Republican leadership looked like hypocrites. Tom mentioned the, these Democrats who lauded whistleblowers, you know they've you know these these House committees, these Democrats, they've crapped on reporters on 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 special prosecutor Durham. I mean, at some point it's going to kick in. Is there anybody they won't trash to defend Biden? I mean, that, that might not be a good look in an impeachment hearing. Are they going to actually defend bribery? Are they going to defend a president's son and brother taking millions of dollars in no-show jobs in industries where they have no expertise whatsoever and in a language they don't understand? Are the, are the Democrats going to be forced to defend the most grotesque kind of influence peddling and then, the, and then the cover-up that accompanied it? I don't think they want that. So it seems to me there ought to be a way out, and the way out is to stop stonewalling and for for this administration to start making itself available and answer some of these questions. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> um, okay. You stole the words right out of Tom's
0: mouth. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> well, um, let, let's go on. I want to talk about uh, Governor DeSantis. Now, this was an interesting week for him. On Tuesday morning, he was in this motorcade, four cars long, Four cars crashed into each other. There were no other cars involved. Um, He was on his way to his event on Tuesday morning. Uh, And that night, they announced the reboot. And this was the DeSantis messaging memo that came out Tuesday evening. They said, we will press the gas on what works and pump the brakes on what doesn't. We will continue to make constant improvements as we move forward. Emily, that's either really funny um, <laughs> or kind of clueless.
3: They spelled breaks wrong. They used they, they <laughs> an incorrect right. version of breaks. Yeah.
0: Uh, exactly. Um, Fired the
3: copy editor.
0: Yeah, it was B-R-E-A-K-S. <laughs> so what do you make of this? And, and, you know,
3: can he write his campaign at this point, do you think? Certainly, I think he can. Um, you know, it, it's definitely possible whether he's in a position right now with this current campaign staff um to do that and leadership campaign leadership to do that is another question Uh, he's now launching this is news that that broke this week a he's doing an economic agenda speech in new hampshire Next week, and that's been—they're pitching that directly as part of this kind of reboot. If you are a month or so into your campaign and already needing to do a reboot by shedding a third of your staff, it's dire straits. Obviously, they understand that, but when you're also shedding a third of your staff that isn't top leadership, uh, that is is not a great sign. If you're just getting rid of you know people at the lower rungs and not the people who have driven the campaign to the point where it needs to get rid of the people at the lower rungs that seems uh, ill-advised. So that's the lingering question that I have. I still think Ron DeSantis is a great candidate. Uh, I think, you know, you can be a great candidate in this race and still not have a shot because... Donald Trump is going to dominate the news cycle with all of the the different legal drama and lawfare, um, and suck up all of the oxygen. So we could you know talk about that for for hours. People have been talking about that since 2015, basically. But I do think Ron DeSantis is a good candidate. I think there's potential with Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, even if he doesn't win the primary, getting him within 10 points of Donald Trump into a position where he's strong in Iowa, strong in New Hampshire. Maybe they can do it, but I, I, you know if you're, if you're not changing your leadership um, and the leadership isn't showing any signs that they get the problem, I just haven't seen that yet. And that makes me somewhat skeptical.
0: Tom, you know part of the reboot seems to be to engage with the mainstream press more. I know he's going to be doing an interview next week with Fox. He's the only veteran, um, I guess, running in the Republican primary. Do you think that any of that can change the trajectory because the polls have not been kind to Ron DeSantis?
1: No, he's been going in the wrong direction and rapidly. I mean, he's down to 17 points uh, in Iowa. You know, Tim Scott's up to almost eight points. So he's, (laughs) you know, nationally, he's at 18.4. He started – when we first started tracking – uh, our average on July second of last year he was at seventeen and a half. He went up to thirty one now he 's back down to almost where he started so it's been it 's been bad i mean it 's hard to quantify what a crappy campaign he 's been running. For a guy who was so popular was seen as just um, this stunning victory, high approval ratings in Florida. He had been, you know sort of a focal point of he's, he'd had national scrutiny over COVID and all that stuff. He seemed to be able to handle himself well, uh, particularly be quick on his feet with the media and the like. And then he gets into the race. And they decide his brain trust, his campaign brain trust, decides that the way to win the nomination from Donald Trump is to attack him from the right, and to go after him on, uh, you know, the crime bill and immigration, and say he didn't build the wall, and say, uh, you know, just that he's a transgender lover, you know, like all these crazy things, and he hasn't won over a single Trump voter. In the eight weeks that he's been officially campaigning. And he's, in fact, lost some of those soft Trump voters who, you know, like Donald Trump, but are looking for somebody else. And when they look at Ron DeSantis, they see someone bashing Donald Trump, and consequently, they've gone other places. Um, And that's one of the reasons I think you've seen Vivek Ramaswamy rise in the polls is because he's actually – Wooing those voters. He's saying, you know, Donald Trump's great. He's been treated unfairly. We need to support him. We need to defend him. We need to do all these things. And oh, by the way, you know, I'm a younger version, better version of Donald Trump um, and his policies and and all those things. But it's just been astonishing to watch someone of DeSantis's stature get involved in a campaign. And to Emily's point, at at what point do you realize it's not working and we need to shift and we need to do something different? But even the things that they're talking about, oh, promote him as a veteran and talk about the economy, that's not going to do it. That's not what the problem is. The problem is the way that they've been attacking Trump from the right and at the same time, you know, trying to trying to win over this undecided piece of the electorate. It's clearly not working, and they don't seem to get it at
2: all. Well, Tom, the the, the economy seems to me to have been the the one element missing from this campaign. I mean, I looked at his, when he ran for re-election in Florida, that's mostly what he talked about. So why would you, you just come off this election in which you, you, you were the, the Republican star on election night. Why would you change your whole strategy? I, I guess because Trump's involved, but I don't understand why it would have taken him so long. They think to are not. Can I ask you a question, economy. Carl? Yeah. Oh, How- and by the way, Tom, before you ask me that, I think Tim Scott is up to 11% in the latest Iowa poll.
1: Yeah, that's he's at 7.7 in our average, but he's been higher. Right, yeah, he's no, he's yeah, definitely in rising. Iowa.
2: But my question is- Wait, wait, wait. My point is he's moving in Iowa. So this thing may not be as static as as we think it is. But my question to you is, how many people
1: is Ron DeSantis going to win over Donald Trump supporters or even soft Donald Trump supporters by saying, I'll be better on the economy than Donald Trump was?
2: Well, I didn't say that's how they should phrase it. I think he <laughs> should. <laughs> I think- he ran as a very competent chief executive who has this solid record in Florida. But then when he, but then that's not how he's, that's not how he's campaigned this time. So I, I'm, look, I don't know how, you, I don't have the secret to beating Donald Trump. My point is that he didn't campaign as himself. He did. This is not how he campaigned six months ago, a year ago.
0: Well, you know, we can talk more about this, but we've only got a little bit of time left and I don't want to shortchange the topic that Carl can and put on the uh, agenda for today. And I have to say, around the Walworth household, this was what we were talking about. So we can talk about it now. There was this hearing up on the Hill uh, to talk about UFOs. Three former military members were there testifying. The most remarkable thing about it was not the news of the alien pilots' remains or someplace in the bowels of the Pentagon or wherever, but the bipartisanship shown. It was a real day of bipartisanship. So I think we can take that from it. Carl, what do you make of the hearings and why were they
2: important? I don't know that they were important. I wouldn't have thought they were important. I would have thought it was a nice diversion from all the toxic crap that normally goes on in Washington. But instead I got a text from my 20 something daughter. Do you you believe in UFOs? What? And then I realized these (laughs) hearings are, I thought she was just pranking me. And then I realized these hearings are going on. she starts reciting to me the stuff from the hearings. And I, I every young person, all the interns in our office, every person I've met under 30 in the last week, that's all they want to talk about. So, you know, obviously these people are nuts, Andy. I mean, this is the <laughs> goofiest thing I've ever heard in my life. But you know what? We need a diversion from our politics. And when, when talking, when loose talk and crazy talk about aliens and UFOs is like, Less nutty than American politics, I guess we should be grateful for the diversion. Emily, as
0: a representative young person on this panel today.
3: Well, <laughs> it's now this is going to make me sound like a lemming, but uh, I, I think it's beyond time to take this very seriously. <laughs> and Good. the the, the uh, evidence. So I think the political incentive here is that both parties have recognized Young people and populists are very interested in the politics of UFOs because it taps into distrust of government. It's a government cover up. It's uh, one of those things that just sort of tickles the imagination, particularly of young people. It's an access point into politics. So I think the fact that it's bipartisan is really interesting. I think it's it's basically cynically politically motivated. I don't think there are a bunch of uh, members of Congress that are suddenly very fascinated and are are outraged by UFO cover ups. Um, I just don't think that's at all what's happening. I feel like they've seen uh, Joe Rogan and popular podcasters start to latch on to this and re- realize that there's some political gold to be mined um, tapping away here at the UFO issue. But yeah, I mean, I think this is, we now have a lot of former people working at the Pentagon who have worked at the Pentagon, who have even worked on the Pentagon UFO program, as in the case of Lou Elizondo, who have made staggering claims about what our government knows. None of them are surprising. Uh, a lot of the has been going on since about the 60s It's concentrated in tends to be concentrated in areas with nuclear technology so you can understand why um it would have you know been been something that uh kicked into high gear around that time period in the cold war um and and there's a lot to learn so like if if congress is cynically going to start probing this issue i'm totally fine with it
1: tom you're a believer (laughs) Where to start? I watched a little bit of the hearings and what struck me about it. And Carl and I were talking about this earlier, which is why we wanted to talk about it on the podcast. In some ways, it was very compelling, right? You have this guy who's a former Air Force guy, David Grush, who's testifying and he's, you know, they're asking him questions. And oh, we've got these, you know, and he's alleging all these like crazy things, right? Like, yeah, we've got these alien remains and people have died because of the cover ups, you know, that's been going on. And, and, and he, he, respond to Senator or the house members by saying, I I can't talk to you about that. We'll have to talk in a skiff. You know, I mean, it was just all very cloak and daggery and, and, but so on its surface, it's kind of compelling. And then, but when you step back and you think, okay, wait a minute. So this has been going on like the, the craft allegedly crashed like the 1930s. So there's been a worldwide conspiracy going on, right. For a hundred years. And it's never come out until this guy in July of 2023 decides to blow the whistle on the whole thing. I mean, it's like it just seems so far fetched that we could have um, all of these things could have been taking place. And it would be the greatest cover up in the history of the world for, uh, you know, 100 years. And that just doesn't seem possible to me. So, well, it I'm- was
2: in the 1940s or <laughs> 1950 that Enrico Fermi. In a conversation with his fellow scientists, they were sitting around talking, and most scientists believe and still believe that trillions of planets, you know, there has to be life elsewhere. And yes, and it, and and then if, if you don't believe that, it, it's 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 like seems like a obvious math problem or maybe a theological issue. But in any event, these the scientists were sitting around, and and, th- and Fermi was making the point that we are a ye- relatively young solar system. And if there's life out there, why haven't we heard of it? He, his famous quote attributed to him is, "Where is everybody?" In other words, all of these civilizations, if this, if the theory is right, many of them have to be much older than us and much more, and presumably more advanced. And they've never contacted us. It's an int- it was an interesting counterpoint when he said it, and it is still to people who just believe there has to be life on other planets. But now we know the Fermi paradox has been solved by as Tom pointed out, the biggest conspiracy in the history of the planet um, by government to keep to keep people in the dark for reasons that are never really explained at all. Because we can't handle the truth, <laughs> <Yeah>. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> That's just how good they are.
0: <laughs> but Emily, you're, you're a culture editor, so I, I, this is sort of a cultural question. But I went online to prepare for today and tried to find sort of the definitive argument that would say, you know, this is all... Bosh! No one is saying that. Every sort of scientist says, it. "Well, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah." Tom and Carl are saying it. <laughs> Tom and Carl, but, but the sci- uh, But my point is, <laughs> what are they? True. Um, <laughs> my point is that the scientists don't say that. They always point out this caveat, and they say, "You know, that there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. We know that stuff. Twenty percent of a planet made of rock where liquid surface could exist. So." you know, it is possible. And if you're a good scientist, I guess, you know, other than global warming, nothing is settled science. So, you know, the scientists do sort of come down with this sort of no-but argument. And the other thing that I saw, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, was people said, well, you know, this is a really interesting time for planet Earth. We've got AI, we've got global warming. If you were coming to observe the planet or change the planet in some way, this is when they would come. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? It was a quote in The Hill. Uh, it was a guy named David Kipping, who's an astrophysicist at Columbia.
2: What do you, you think? You mean this is when they've come so Trump doesn't get elected again? <laughs> yeah, this, right. You mean they're benign? <laughs> right, oh. right,
3: And And Trump will be complicit in the <laughs> Of course. release any They'll of this. him no, over I'm it. <laughs> right. Um, well, that's probably the best argument that there's nothing there because if Donald Trump looked at the uh, the secret book uh, and there were aliens in it, we would know. Um, that's that is one of the best counter arguments that I've heard. Uh, but I just w- while you were saying that, Andy, I went to Joe Rogan's Instagram um, from the cultural perspective because I remembered a couple of weeks ago he posted a headline from a physics website like physics.org, and the headline is, new research put puts age of universe at 26.7 billion years, nearly twice as old as previously believed. And so I think what you, why there's so much hedging in the scientific community is because they're continuously every single day stumbling upon uh, knowledge that dramatically changes the way we see the world. We see world history, we see the world's future. And I shouldn't even say the world, I should say the universe. Um, It just makes it, you know, we we are living in, we've had industrialization for a couple hundred years. We've had printed books for you know 600 years uh we're living in a, a very a, an age of hyper novelty where we're learning more and more and more it wasn't that long ago people thought the world was flat um so I, I think you see hedging the scientific community because they are part of science at a time when science is is constantly finding uh new nooks and crannies in the universe that we didn't previously know were there things are always expanding and uh, that's that's my i i think that would be my take on where you see that hedge and it's interesting that rogan posted that because he's he is really been the catalyst i think for uh ufo in the pop cultural space like one of the most popular podcasts in the world he was on this beat from day one um, and has been giving a lot of people the platform to make these claims
0: carl
2: are we in a cultural moment where this is sort of like important if neil young listens to this podcast he might get back on spotify i think that that neil young and joe rogan may have more in common than they realize (laughs) tom last
1: word it's going to continue. I mean, so obviously our fascination with space will always continue. And we will continue to – it's a very human thing to believe that they're, that we're not alone, that there are other species out there. And to Emily's point, I think a lot of people, more and more people are, are not just susceptible to believing conspiracy theories, but are kind of leaning into some of them for various reasons. And this is one that I think more and more people will, will probably – lean into based on what we heard in Congress the other day.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to follow this story, I can promise you. I want to thank Emily Jashinsky, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. We're here most Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast, come back often. If you're in part of the country that has experienced the record heat, um, like we are here on the Maryland Shores, I have a way to cool down. Go to RealClearPolitics.com and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It may help you better understand other points of view and keep your political discussions at a low boil. So thank you for listening. Until next time, for RealClearPolitics, I'm Andrew Walworth.